Aloha, good morning, good afternoon, and good night to the Decrypting AI space. Um, this is where the emerging tech team from Emerge at Decrypt tackle the latest news and conversations surrounding artificial intelligence, as well as, if it strikes us, other emerging tech ranging from quantum computing to longevity to space, because some of us are space cadets. I'm Ryan Ozawa, the Emerge Editor at Decrypt, and we are together hosting this space. It is Jason Nelson, very experienced and super talented writer at Emerge. How are you doing this morning, sir? I'm well, sir, and uh, can't wait to get going. No kidding, no kidding. It seems like every week there's just as much stories about artificial intelligence that our colleagues at Decrypt have to cover about crypto, and that's no surprise. So let's just jump right in. Um, what story did you want to start with? I think the best one to start with is the story about the mind-reading AI that turned a person with ALS's thoughts into text. That's uh. very impressive. And I think it's tech like that that's going to make AI more generally accepted by the by the masses because it's a clear, this is what this is for. And I, I really see that as the best use case that this industry can have when it comes to, uh, you know, dispelling the fear and misconceptions people have about AI. You can't really beat, we can make the people who can't speak, speak. Absolutely. And actually, what I think is interesting is that this is a combination of two of our areas over at Emerge. You have, uh, you know, biohacking in the sense of the neurotech. And of course, as we discussed last week about the human cost of testing invasive methods to connecting to someone's brain. Here we're talking about a very non-invasive, just sort of sensor-based way to pick up brain waves. And then you add in the AI, and it's specifically generative AI, but it's AI that was trained on the patient's own experiences and you know writings and even their voice before they lost the ability to speak. So AI is doing what it does for everybody, but for a specific person in helping them express themselves because it can do a great job predicting based on the brainwaves what it is they're trying to say. Exactly. And, you know, I think we, we've gotten so conditioned to think about AI in terms of um, ChatGPT that, you know, ChatGPT, while it is still the standard in generative AI, we're we're actually years beyond that now because once that i mean it's actually one year ago almost today that chat gpt was released to the public and now here we are talking about ai reading brainwaves i mean that's one year's worth of work in an industry that just exploded and i think it bears uh repeating what you had mentioned last week which is that although Neuralink is getting a lot of the headlines because of its controversial CEO. This work has been happening for years. And um, this company, though, interestingly called Unbabel, and this uh, headset they're calling Project Halo, they were basically doing um, more of the language generative text AI sort of business model 
before they found this capability by merging it with the um, the neurosensors, basically the brain sensors in the hardware of Project Halo. So yeah, I mean, so much changes in the year. We've covered stories where people can think about a song and a, a computer can play that song. And we have, you know, uh, paralyzed people being able to regain not just a movement, but actually the sense of touch because of the feedback aspect. So you're right. I mean, I don't know how many of these uh, decrypting AI talks we've had where it's just sort of shaking our head over all the terrible things that people are doing with AI. But this is why I think I agree. Um, not only is it obviously a worthwhile investment for the advancement of technology, but this will probably be hopefully what earns it a little more grace from the general public. Well, and to that point, I think that is hopefully where more developers go you know, it, it's, it, it's, this is a powerful tool that soon, like when our interview with uh, the uh, CEO of Singularity Net, uh, Ben Gertzel said, you know, we're headed towards artificial general intelligence and the singularity when this stuff starts to actually think for itself. So I would prefer we, you know, hopefully train it to think about how it can make our lives better as opposed to how it can replace us. I think once that gets instilled in AI on a mass level, sky's the limit. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked to that group that was like, we shouldn't be training AI to think like humans because that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to our planet. Um, but certainly uh, it depends. It's, it's, it's almost like what you would say about any computer system, garbage in, garbage out. So do a, a better job. So, I don't know about you, but the high, low, and uh-oh, I think we've got one of our very rare highs with this story. Yeah, this is definitely a high. I can't wait to see what else these guys come up with. The uh, I think not being invasive is their edge over AI, uh, over um, Neuralink, because I've seen the photos of Neuralink, and I, as much as I'm into uh, AI and the whole cyberpunk aspect of it, I'm not going to let you dig a piece of my skull out. So <laughs> so I think if these guys just have the thing that you can wear on your head, that is where there will be the game changer. And I can actually see them in the long run, um, if they keep it up, surpassing Neuralink as the uh, one everyone's talking about. Totally. I think that actually most of these companies are not going the invasive route. I imagine Neuralink thinks that there's going to eventually be an advantage to hardwiring versus through the skin or just picking it up ambient. But uh, that seems like it's a long way away. I'm very excited. We're going to make sure we keep an eye on our friends here at uh, Unbabel and their project Halo. Next up, we have uh, the first public acknowledgement from OpenAI CEO Sam Altman that GPT-5 is coming. Now, when uh, uh, Jose pitched this story, I was like, I can predict that GPT-5 is coming the same way I can predict, like, you know, uh, 6G is coming and 7G and 8G. You just add number, add a number to the, the current one. But it turned out to be a little more complicated than that, right, Jason? Well, that's the, I think a year ago, OpenAI would have had an, a much easier time of just rolling out these GPTs like they were in the past. GPT-5 is going to hit a lot of roadblocks because GPT-4 GPT, and, quite frankly, GPT-3.5 are on everybody's minds now. 
So he can't just willy-nilly scrape data from the internet anymore because people are aware that he does that, that all of these models do that. So he has to play a, a, a um, more uh, 4D chess now to keep his, keep OpenAI has to do that to keep their edge because now you have policymakers talking about what are you doing with this data? You have government agencies talking about privacy and transparency and all this other stuff. So I think that's one reason why he didn't give too much detail on what GPT-5 is gonna be and how it's gonna be built because they're still trying to work through all of that. Actually, I think um, Jose raised the, the more salient point, which is it was with the release of GPT-4 that triggered everybody saying, pump the brakes, this is too much, we need to slow down, pause development, you know, the world yeah. is ending, uh, including our good friend Elon Musk, who in fact just signed that letter and admitted later that he was just trying to slow down a competitor. How nice. But it was definitely about that pushback that this is happening too fast. So he, uh, Sam Altman and OpenAI was like, don't worry, we're going to focus on GPT-4, we're going to make it better, we're going to do cool things with it. And in fact, just like less than a week ago, it was GPT-4 Vision and adding the multimodal capability so it can, you know, create images and direct integration with DALI. So it did seem like five or six days ago, yes, they were telling the truth. GPT-4 is where they're putting all of their energy. So I just thought it was funny that uh, like three or four days later, they said, oh, by the way, GPT-5 is coming. So... Well, I think they just had to play it safe. You also have the GPTs that they announced uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, where you can create your own version of ChatGPT inside ChatGPT. Uh, we put out an article last week about the top GPTs, and you can actually, if you go to that article um, on decrypt.co, you can actually click into them and play with them. There's one that I created called uh, Professor, Professor Thoth, which is about uh, esoterica and occult studies. You can ask it questions about different topics and it'll populate right there. Uh, once that becomes, uh, I'm not sure, I, I forget if it's in beta or if everybody can use it, but I know you need a GPT plus subscription to use it. Once that, once they figure out a way to monetize that, that's where everybody's going to be focusing their attention for at least the foreseeable future. I'm just excited speaking about those GPTs, how quickly we got here, because even when AI and generative AI trained on the massive volume of information on the internet emerged, I was saying, hey, well, this is great, but what you want is an AI trained on you, like that read all your email, all your essays from school, <laughs> all of your um, letters, and so that when it writes something, it just conjures you. It doesn't conjure some other random amalgamation of humanity that speaks the same language as you. And that's actually what these are. And in fact, Jose on our team, he trained a, a GPT on a specific art style and now uh, not a not a famous art style because there's protections against that, but against one of our artists just to demonstrate how it could emulate that. I mean, very exciting. And again, all happened in GPT-4, but uh, the headline being that GPT-5, yes, just add a number to GPT-4, is on the roadmap and they're going to start working on it. But you're right, they now have resistance and they ha now have a significant amount of competition. So that's probably what balanced having to mention that it's coming because everybody's paying attention to everybody now. Exactly. And and one more point I think is worth noting is that GPT-4, uh, actually, I'm not sure if 3.5 does it too, but I know GPT-4 does it where you can customize how it responds to you. 
like my GPT-4 calls me by my name. And, you know, you can tell it to when it responds, respond with a sense of humor, respond with a dry wit or something like that. I mean, that's already putting in a deeper level of conversational interaction, which I think helps with these things get to know us better to tailor it to us because it quips kind of like the way we do. So mm -hmm. adding that to GPTs on top of just the already base chat GPT is going to be a game changer once they start making that more common. Yeah, I think they're smart to focus on plugins and extensions because that's what you're eventually going to want rather than just driving head forward on the large language model. So low, high, uh-oh, what do we got on GPT-5? Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, hold off on that judgment. <laughs> you can't do that. That's, that breaks the rules. Uh, let's call it a high uh, O because it depends on what it looks like once they roll it out. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to, I guess you're going to call that a huh, huh, oh, I can't say it. Um, I'm going to call it a high though. I just think we're pushing ahead forward. We're going to have a story later today from Jose about a Chinese AI LLM that is already, you know, significantly bigger than what they think Jeep, uh, OpenAI is doing. So this is just happening very, very quickly. What's uh, what's your next story? Um, one thing, one thing that we have spoken about in the past, and Jose did a great job of writing this up, and we have to get him in here one of these days. Um, NVIDIA created an AI to better understand COVID-19. And that was something that we had been tracking for a while anyway, because with medical, like we spoke to uh, Keck Medicine of USC a couple of weeks ago, and they're using AI to diagnose cancer. So now you have people trying to use, using AI to track, diagnose, and figure out ways to combat COVID-19 which we all know is still an issue, and especially going into the winter season. So it's interesting to me that just like, okay, we already have hundreds of thousands of medical professionals on, on this already. Now we're gonna bring these powerful AIs into it. So hopefully that makes it a faster turnaround to cures going into the future. I think the medical applications are another one of my favorite areas of the application of AI. Um, my brilliant girlfriend is uh, uh, biochemist, bio uh, did bi uh, biotech startups, and we were just, she was just telling me about you know research into Alzheimer's and how it wasn't long ago that to even know anything about it, you had to wait until the patient died, right? Um, what you have with AI, and you're seeing this in cancer diagnosis, as you said, is that it wasn't long ago where you would look at scans of tissue and say, okay, this looks like a developing tumor. Um, you have to use that kind of judgment with your eyeball. But now you can feed an AI model all of these images across both healthy and um, uh, patients of cancer and basically wind back the clock. And AI can say, oh, well, these are all trends that happen before you even have a tumor. And this is how you're going to be able to determine something way before and detect before. So COVID-19, I like that because we're already in a post-COVID world where it's not so much COVID's beat, but that it's going to continue to evolve. So 
these models can basically predict where and how COVID will adjust over time, and we can be ready for the next variant and the next variant and the next variant um, much faster than we could by trial and error. So I'm with you. This is another um, really powerful place that begins to suddenly make the attempts by the U.S. government, at least, to put the brakes on all of this stuff a little, you know, there's going to be a double-edged sword there. Well, I, the more I look at it, the the more I, I start to look at the regulation that's coming out as not so much of putting the brake on it as more of how do we make this usable to us? Because one of the things that had been said about crypto over the last few years is that there's no re, there's no need for it, right? Especially in in more developed countries like the United States, you don't need cryptocurrency. And less developed countries, that's not necessarily true. But with AI, there's so many things you could do with it that telling people to knock it off would cause more harm than, than good. So the, the regulations aren't about shutting it down. It's about curtailing it into a way that makes it more generally usable, more usable to the government, of course, and more usable to the medical professions and other industries around the world. I think the challenge, of course, is that because you have businesses involved, because you have the profit motive, and because of the scenarios we've all talked about every week about how science fiction can go bad, how these, um, when you talk about the singularity, the other aspect of what makes the singularity is not just that AI is smarter than humans, but that it escapes our ability to control it. Um, that's the that's the challenge. It, it almost makes me feel like, you know, legislation and all of that kind of helps us know what we would like to have happen, but we're way past the point where we could actually control what happens. But broadly speaking, I'm going to say in our, um, yes, uh, high, low, or uh-oh on this, um, the ability to understand COVID, accelerate medical discoveries, cancer detection, perhaps someday Alzheimer's, um, I say it's a definite high. Yeah, this is a high 100%. I mean, the as 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 someone who had who is has cancer survivors in their family, you know, one of the things that you would have liked was for a faster diagnosis. And using these large language model tools, you can have that now or at least you can have it going into the future so that other people can have a better shot at surviving cancer as well. Well, I don't think we could have one of these shows and not talk about our friend, Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson, the billionaire founder of, oh, what did he call his company? Oh, he, Blueprint. Um, he is, yes, the fellow who is investing, I think we reported $4 million so far over two years, uh, chasing youth and virility, basically kind of extending what was probably in the the 90s, the uh, quantified self movement, taking a data-driven approach to health and taking it to its absolute extreme. And, uh, you know, he's been measuring certain body parts and how they perform in certain ways. But uh, now he did this interview where he basically talked about how all of this has cost him money, certainly. But I thought it was interesting that he kept using as his message that I'm trying to say, if I can do it, anybody can do it which on one hand makes you roll your eyes because he's a billionaire, but on the other hand, because he's, his point is even small changes can make a difference and they're worth making. Well, that I have to agree with him on that point. You know, the, the, like 
the simplest form of bettering your health is to get up and walk. And anybody, anybody who is healthy in that way can do that. But like you say, his, it's a disingenuous argument, I feel, because he's a billionaire and he has the money and resources to do this experiment. The average person doesn't. So I'm already gonna call this a, a low out the bat because I think one of the problems with this whole biohacking movement is that it typically is wealthy people telling you all the stuff they're doing to their bodies that you as a regular person can't afford to do. So it's like, okay, so the elite and the wealthy are gonna live over a hundred, but everybody else, good luck. Wow, you know, maybe I watched, I'm starting to pay too much attention to him and watch too many of his videos, but I, I wouldn't say I'm coming around, but I think he's at least being consistent on a couple of points. Now, certainly we don't have access to the gene therapies he wants to play with. We don't have access to the various things he's stuffing in his pants to, to do stuff. Like, yes, he's got access and money and resources, and frankly, he doesn't have to have a day daytime job, so why not spend 24-7 trying to live forever? But, you know... Even just today, and it, as part of this interview, he really went off on the importance of sleep. And like people, just get more sleep. That's like one of the very first things you can do to improve performance, to improve health. And I totally believe, as someone who can't sleep very well at all, I know that my quality of life would get 100 times better as soon as I figure out a way to conquer sleep. And I don't think that's unreasonable. You know, he, he, he talks about his diet. There's certainly a lot of people who could change the trajectory of their health by changing their diet. So yeah, no gene therapy for us, no laboratories. Um, but you know, he's he's at least I think preaching the right message. The other thing that was interesting about the story was that it introduced us to his I guess partner, business partner. I want to say business partner, um, who's a woman, uh, and she's now the first person who's officially committed to following the blueprint and how she's feeling and how she's doing. So, you know, someone who, well, again, has the free time and resources to go all in on that. But, you know, I think that it helps to have more data points and certainly not just men. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point because it shouldn't just be him doing this because actually the more people who do it, the more provable the results are. Um, with I'm still not really in his camp about this just because. No, no, let's fight. Go. Yeah. Don't, you're being so polite. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> well, no, my, my issue with this whole thing, though, is that, like, he, he yesterday put out a my father's aging was reverse. I forget how many years he said because of uh, our after a plasma transfusion. But then in the same breath, he said there's no proof or it's inconclusive if the plasma treatment actually had any effect. So it's like, okay, so if there's no proof, why'd you say it? <laughs> well, he's, so he's using an over, he's using an off the shelf um, blood test that looks for a specific marker. And that marker is one that is known to have an impact, not certainly control, not even necessarily a major impact on someone's likelihood of uh, age-related disease. So he's saying, I gave my dad this, this blood, um, we kept testing him with this test, and this number went down, which to me, and that's where he gets like 25%, which is kind of ridiculous. But he's saying, at least based on this measurement, things got better. 
doesn't mean his dad's not going to have a heart attack tomorrow. Doesn't mean that he's going to live any longer, but he's using the tools available to at his disposal to see if this helps. The, the reason why I would roll my eyes at this is that he was the same person who, who uh, infused himself with the blood of his son, which was distressing. Um, and, and actually he declared after that experiment that nothing got any better for him. So it's interesting that he's saying that maybe working with an older person, he was seeing these changes in biomarkers. Well, he did say something that I did find interesting where the older we get, the faster we age. That's something I wouldn't mind looking further into because I, I don't think we really understand how the body um, works after a certain point in our lives. But at the same time, it's like, okay, so the blood didn't work. We don't know if the plasma doesn't work. What are you going to try next? And there's only so many fluids in the human body. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's where our, we'll, we'll see what he does next. Well, but I feel like he's willing to try everything. And maybe we should be like, well, at least somebody's poking and prodding himself. I mean, he's also, you know, well, <laughs> uh, I was able to have like a six hour erection or something like that. Well, good for you, buddy. Like, not glad it's not me. Um, good, good, good. But uh, yeah, I, and, and finally, I think on this point, what I thought was really interesting about this interview was that the reason why him, he and this partner uh, bonded was that what started this entire journey down biohacking and longevity was the early, early signs that artificial intelligence was coming around and their joint belief that the future of humanity, and this is where sci-fi comes in, is for us and AI to merge. So all of this is sort of like we're just going to become better human beings because, one, we're going to get better on the biological side, but also we're going to get better on the technology side. Frightening, scary, but it does mix in the two big channels of emerge here for us at Decrypt. But so you said this is a low. I'm going to call give it an uh-oh, because why not? Um, but definitely very interesting. If, the, if, if anything, he is very effective at garnering attention. Yeah, he's definitely getting getting his his you know fifteen minutes. But I would caution anyone who's who's following his work to to speak to a medical professional. Don't just start injecting things into your body because some billionaire told you to. You wouldn't do it for Elon, so don't do it for this guy either. I'm not sure if there that so, that people won't do it for Elon. But anyway, I don't want to get into the cult of personality, and I think that Brian's got that going for sure. Um, but that's why he has a business. He has this blueprint and people are signing up by the dozens to follow him into the great unknown. So that, uh, I think, is a pretty good rundown of our eMERGE headlines. A lot of artificial intelligence, but I do think um, we're going to talk more about the other things in our wheelhouse from space to quantum computing, although I don't fully understand it, to many of these other topics. Um, we also are doing our how-to AI series. Um, Jason, do you have any preview about what you will be working on in the coming weeks on helping people use AI tools? Well, we just did how to GPT, so I think we'll probably do something about um, just different artistic tools, different uh, image generators might be on, on the way. Uh, but you just have to keep on with uh, decrypt.co and find out. Very, very nice. We actually just put up a course on MidJourney. It's doing very, very well. MidJourney is tons of fun. So I think it's great that we're helping people figure that out. Um, and Jose, who is our third um, 
partner here on the Emerge side, but very shy, um, is working on a comprehensive top seven list, I think, of the biggest large language models, most powerful large language models out there. And we're going to keep updating that. Uh, so, yeah, great stuff ahead. Um, again, a final reminder, although we do these talk story sessions every Wednesday at noon Eastern time U.S., uh, in December, we are going to do one on LinkedIn. So if you hate LinkedIn, we apologize. But if you do spend time there, uh, we're going to use their equivalent of Twitter spaces and see how that works and how that audience is. So uh, just like the people we cover here at Emerge, it's about experimenting and checking out the data. I'm going to say goodbye and let uh, Jason sign us off. All right, everybody. See you next week. And be sure to check out Decrypt.co.